0: We have much to be thankful for in this country. We live in a land that has enjoyed abundant portions of the grace of God. We also have much to pray about in our current condition. We have some things to repent of. We have many things to intercede on the behalf of. You know, my generation unfortunately, introduced a great deal of cynicism into mainstream America. It was during our generation that it became out of fashion to be patriotic. That is unfortunate, and hopefully it is in the past as well. Because it was John Winthrop who in 1630, as he approached the coast of New England, looked upon America and wrote that this could be a land... uh, a city sit upon a hill. And in many ways, America is the only and best hope uh, for this world, not the American institution, but the grace of God flowing through uh, the church in this country. Well, this morning, to share some perspective and to give us some insight before we pray together is uh, someone who's been around Calvary for quite a while, has a strong Military background, graduate of West Point, a commander of a Stinger battalion, graduate of the Command and General College, and also uh, promoted recently to full colonel. Would you please say good morning to Greg Zanetti? Good morning.
1: Ben. This is a Bible. How many of you believe, like Skip, that this is a book of God's love for us? Hey, you know, it's also a history book. It's a book about economics, right? How to handle our money, our possessions, how to be good stewards of God's money. Uh, Chuck Missler says it's a code book that prophecy is revealed in God's time through the Bible. I think he's right there, too. You know what else this is a book of? It's a book about war. Right? Empires have risen and fallen. History has changed. God has used war to punish. God has used war to reward. And yet, war is what we don't talk about very much from the pulpit, do we? We're not very comfortable with it. And as a subject for the National Day of Prayer, you're probably thinking, oh, my gosh, I didn't come here to listen to some guy talk about war. But I thought I'd take a lesson from Skip. And I've never, ever seen Skip avoid a tough subject. And so since it is a book about war, let's talk about war this morning. And uh, where are we going? And let's get a perspective on war from a Christian view and hopefully give you a framework. I hope to be a better witness as we go forward. And so an odd subject for National Day of Prayer, but let's talk about war. Uh, Now, I want you to be patient with me. The first part of this talk, you're going to think, is this guy ever going to talk about Christ and about prayer and about God? Or are we just going to talk about the war college stuff? Uh, Bear with me. We'll come around to it, but I need to set the stage. In terms of warfare, if there's a major trend that I want you to recognize today, in fact, if you know this, you probably recognize more than 90% of the people in the world about the direction the world is going. There's a major trend in the world right now concerning warfare, and it's this. The nation-state, as we know it, is in decline. And you're probably thinking, well, yeah, we know this, Greg. We've got moral decline in the country. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the institution itself of the nation-state. Now, it's what you and I grew up with, France and Germany and Spain, the United States, Japan. It's countries that have unified around oaths and anthems and constitutions and representative governments, that type of thing, the nation state in reality is a pretty new invention. Most historians place the birth of the nation state in 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia. Prior to nation states, we had kingdoms, we had principalities, we had empires, we had cultures, we had civilizations, but not nation states. Well, As you and I look at the world, we look at it through a nation-state viewer. That nation-state is in decline, and for a number of reasons. The first reason has to do with trade. World trade has boomed, hasn't it? Product comes in from everywhere. And companies that you and I think of that would be American companies, Coca-Cola, I guarantee you Coca-Cola does not think of itself as an American company. They're an international company, aren't they? and McDonald's and IBM and Ford Motor Company. And that type of thing pulls away at the sovereignty of the nation state. How is it that Bill Gates at Microsoft is able to thumb his nose at the U.S. Justice Department? Because he can, right? He can pack up and move his company at any time. And who would be hurt more, the U.S. or Microsoft? Probably the U.S., What else is tearing away at the power of the nation state? The computer and technology. With a push of a button today, you can move money from company to company, state to state, country to country, continent to continent, and encode it, and governments have no idea that your money has moved, right? When governments cannot track money, they lose their power to tax, don't they? When governments start losing the power to tax, the power of the nation-state drifts away. Staying on money, nation-states are also voluntarily giving up their sovereignty. What's going on in Europe right now? They're giving up the Deutschmark, the French franc, the lira. You can't tell me that the power of the nation-state increases when you lose control over your own currency, right? Even the means of warfare. Right now we have France and Germany and Britain cooperating on creating weapon systems. Can you imagine saying this 40 years ago? The French and the Germans would be getting together to create weapon systems? Sacre bleu, you know, never. <laughs> Not only that, they're doing this because it's so expensive, so you lose a little bit of sovereignty as you cooperate in these allied efforts, but also arms are able to go into hands of war, I'll call them gangs, Right, Big gangs like in Kosovo and so on. The government does not control the means of violence anymore. It used to be the nation-state controlled the means of violence. Weaponry has moved everywhere, including nuclear weapons. And when nation-states don't control the means of violence, they lose their grip. And even what Chip talked about earlier, about the loss of patriotism, don't you see it here? Nations are losing control even of their people and patriotic fervor they feel about their country. And so what we see is the nation state in decline. Well, people want to feel an allegiance to to something, don't they? We hope that they would feel an allegiance to God. In the absence of that, if they don't feel an allegiance to God or to the nation, what do they go to? I think it's the next closest thing it's your skin, it's your blood. It's your heritage, right? And isn't that what we see going on right now? Do you see nation states going to war against each other? Britain against France? Uh Uh-uh. You see tribe against tribe now, don't you? Aren't we coming back around sort of full circle? Because that's the way it used to be, wasn't it? Hittites versus the Moabites versus the Canaanites. It was that sort of thing. I believe that if Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were alive today, and they saw the war in Kosovo, they'd be very familiar with it. they say, well, yeah, this, this is what war is all about. Well, what we're seeing is this trend of civilization against civilization, culture against culture, but not nation-state against nation-state. And the old fault line down through Eastern Europe with Islam on one side, Christianity on the other, we see it reforming. That's what's going on in Bosnia right now, that's going what's going on in Kosovo right now. And it's culture against culture. Now, it used to be that civilizations could sort of separate themselves. You could have one group go off here, another group go off here, and you'd have this geographic buffer zone that kept you from war. It's not true anymore. The world has expanded too much and the cultures come into conflict on a daily basis. By the way, do you know who the biggest aggressor in the culture war is? Who's on the attack? We are, the United States. We are by far the best country in the world at exporting our culture. It's Coca-Cola, it's McDonald's, it's Levi's on an economic front. On an ideological front, what do we export? Liberty, freedom, uh, human rights, democracy. Wasn't it rather odd that uh, at Tiananmen Square, they erected a Statue of Liberty? We are exporting our ideology to the world. I, I think a lot of that's good. What else are we exporting? Prostitution, drugs, crime, breakdown in the family. And that's not so good. And it becomes cultures in conflict. Because when we export that to, say, a traditional culture, now traditional culture may be very oppressive repressive, no rights for women, all of the bad stuff we talk about. On the flip side, oftentimes their families are very stable. Divorce rates are low. Crime is low. And we come pushing in with Baywatch and Lethal Weapon 2 and reruns of Dallas and saying, be like us. Cultures in conflict. So can we be the ones who are starting war? Absolutely. So, if you can accept this—that civilizations are coming into conflict, the nation-state is in decline—the question comes down to: How do you win the next war? Well, the rules of battle haven't changed since Sun Tzu four thousand years ago. The key thing any military person is taught is to know your enemy, and you know, we treat that rather blithely well. They're the enemy over there. It's probably a little bit more than that. Uh, There was a strategist by the name of Carl von Clausewitz. He wrote a book on war. It's what the U.S. Army uses today as the basis for doctrine. And Clausewitz said if you're going to defeat the enemy, you have to know the enemy's center of gravity. So it's more than just knowing the enemy. It's knowing what you have to hit at the enemy, their center of gravity that will destroy them. Uh, As an example, in the Civil War, The center of gravity for the South was probably Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. Once Robert E. Lee lost at Gettysburg, the outcome wasn't in doubt. We were going to win the war. North was. Well, the center of gravity isn't always an army. During the Vietnam War, what was the U.S. center of gravity? It wasn't the army. We lost very few battles during the war. But the Vietnamese cracked the code. They figured out our center of gravity was American public opinion. If you could turn American public opinion, we could lose every battle out there, the Vietnamese thought, and we'll still win. And they were right. During the Iran or the Gulf War, we believed the center of gravity was the Republican guard of Saddam Hussein. If we could defeat them, Saddam Hussein would fall. We did defeat them, crushed them in 100 hours. But we probably had the center of gravity wrong, didn't we? And now, eight years later, we look back on it and we say, gee, maybe the victory wasn't everything that we thought it was. Well, when you get civilization clashing against civilization, culture against culture, what's the center of gravity? Let me ask you this. In Kosovo right now, if we could destroy the entire army of Milosevic, would the war end? We might delay it but I'm not sure it ends. If we destroy their supply lines, does the war end? Probably not. In a nation-state against nation-state war, the centers of gravity we talked about earlier are very common. In culture against culture, civilization against civilization, I believe the center of gravity is hatred. You've got Milosevic invoking battles from 1349 to rally his people. I think if he wiped out every weapon he's got, he's going to rally the people and they'll go strangle them if they're going to win the war. And so we're fighting a war on a nation-state level. They're fighting a war on a civilization-against-civilization civilization level. Saddam Hussein did the same thing, by the way. Did he call in Iraqis to unite? He called on the nation of Islam to unite, didn't he? He understood it. And how were these wars fought Back in biblical times, what was the center of gravity? If the center of gravity is hatred, you have two options. The first option is you kill everybody, right? If you wipe out the enemy completely, you win the war. And that's what's going on now in Kosovo, isn't it? You kill everybody. You kill all the men. You kill the boys. You kill the old men. And if you don't kill the women, then you assimilate them into your culture. But again, this was very common back in the old days. Why are there no more Moabites? Where are the Hittites? Wiped them out. That was warfare. Now, that's option one as we go forward. Right, just so you know sort of the uh, shame of this, the best I can tell, war is not going away. That We're going to have war all the way up to the end. And One of our last great acts as human beings is We'll array a 200 million man army to war against God, all the silly things. But uh, why would you array a 200 million man army against Israel? Would it be for wealth? What wealth in Israel? Would it be for land? Israel's this tiny little country. It would be for hatred, wouldn't it? Just because you hate them. And that's the direction we're going. Now, I now want to talk about another way to fight this war. And I'm going to talk about Jesus as a military leader. You don't think of him like that, do you? Yet when Christ walked the earth, he's in Israel, and they're a nation under occupation, aren't they? Rome is controlling the government. There are soldiers in the streets. And what did the Jews want? They wanted the Messiah to be a king, but first a general, right? He was supposed to rally the people, lift up swords, go to battle, and crush the Romans. And that was the way you would think, right? Nation against nation, wipe them out. And that's what they wanted. General first, king second. Well, Christ decided to have a different strategy. And he said, You know, instead of stopping everybody's heart, let's change everybody's heart. Interesting strategy, huh? As a military man, you'd look at it and think, Are you nuts? And for the first number of years following Christ's time on earth and forward, we were losing. I mean, the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, didn't they? Totally destroyed the temple, wiped it out, total military victory. And yet, as we look back on it, on the long reach of history today, who won? Who's more enduring, what Christ started or the Roman Empire? Who won the war? Jesus, best I can tell. And in the very end, he's going to win it hands down. And he decided to take a different tact, and it was change people's hearts. And it's funny the way he approached it. He went to the Jews and said, we're not going to try to change Roman hearts. We're going to change our hearts. And the Jews said, what? They're oppressing us. And you want us to change? Yes. Interesting strategy. And yet, as a soldier, evaluating it, looking back on it today, smart guy. Never thought of Jesus as George S. Patton, did you? He really was. So today, on the National Day of Prayer, as we talk about war, let's follow what Chip just said. Let's talk about changing our hearts, and let that message go out. And maybe then we will finally you know, take our spears and make them—what was it? Plowshares into you know the quote. Hold on, let me get it. Well, let me, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and they shall learn no war no more right is that a good goal let's pray for that today on the national day of prayer and i thank you for the opportunity to talk
0: thanks greg wise words as a footnote to what greg was sharing we do face overwhelming odds. If you look at the onslaught of cultural change and social pressure, you might think there are powers being brought to bear upon our families and our communities that are incredible. And really, what can we do? A motley crew here gathered on a uh, Thursday morning in Albuquerque. But as as Greg said, the the seat of power is deceiving. You know, 2,000 years ago, the most powerful man on earth Caesar Nero took a man in a ragged robe and condemned him to to death. That was Paul the Apostle. You think, boy, Nero and Paul, no no contest. Well, 2,000 years later, we call our dogs Nero and name our sons Paul. So, so, So things have changed. Likewise, I would submit to you that the seat of power today lies in our hands. Because I want to commit you to prayer in in groups here in just a moment with this thought. If my people. It's a, a plea from heaven. God says, if my people. Because judgment begins at the house of the Lord. I need not dictate to you the litany of ills that beset our land. Alphabetically, you can just begin with the A's of abortion and alcoholism and abuse, and I'll not go on. You know the point. But if my people, judgment begins with us. We're the ones who know better. We're the ones who have the light. You are the city set upon the hill. You have been given the awesome privilege and, consequently, responsibility to intercede on behalf of those who dwell in darkness. See, these people who live outside of the church, it's not that they can't see the light. They don't even believe there is light. They are in so much darkness that we can but expect them to live in a reprobate fashion. We are the ones who have the benefit of knowing. And so now, if my people will humble themselves, will you humble yourself? Will you commit yourself to a life of intercession? That's really the call the christian life there are different kinds of crises that beset a land and there are different kinds of captivity because as god deals with a corporate nation state as greg said there are there are different levels of god's touch of his hand it begins with a conviction of conscience it ends with full captivity we we have the benefit of watching israel go through that process and they never learned that lesson They didn't respond to the conscience, and ultimately God took them into captivity. It doesn't mean we'll be transported to Iraq. There is also a cultural captivity when you lose your children, when you lose your infrastructure. And so let us respond to the call and the prick of God's hand upon our conscience that says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. Let's Stand on that promise and exercise our option and our faith this morning.